disability activism is my passion. The irony is that my mother started working on these issues in 1979. She is not disabled. My father's not disabled. I am. But I wasn't at two years old. So the fact that she was making my life better before knowing that I would grow up to be disabled is just so beautiful. She was working on this stuff all my whole life. And even though I started having lupus symptoms at 12, I wasn't diagnosed until 24. Welcome to Invisible Not Broken. Today we're talking about the state of COVID-19 in 2023, disability and law in the entertainment industry, and the challenges of receiving proper pain medication. Our host Monica is joined by lawyer, author, comedian, and disability activist Julia Urzik, who lives with lupus, osteoarthritis, degenerative disc disease, and fibromyalgia. All right, Julia Ursak, I have been really excited. We had a almost pretend interview a while ago, but so much has happened since then. I think we're just going to have to redo. And I really wanted to talk to you about this because you and your father are so involved with COVID. And for a lot of us, we do understand COVID is not over, but the way that the government has been working with this, it has put us in the, oh, extreme and perilous danger. So like, send this over to you to... The tacos, because they don't really understand what's going on or why it's happening, because it doesn't seem to be backed up by science. That is true. It's not. But on the plus side, good news first, COVID numbers are declining. Whereas a couple of months ago or the beginning of the year, we were having 350 dead Americans every day. The rolling average now is about 150. So that is very significantly less. I mean, still horrifying, but yeah. Still horrifying, but... The majority of the people who are dying are people who are not vaccinated and who have pre-existing health conditions for which they should have gotten vaccinated. I mean, I'm, it's hard not to be horrified at the death toll, but also there's a way to avoid that. And unfortunately, messaging around vaccination in the red part of the country has been terrible. And people are dying because they are being misled by their political leaders and people that they trust. I am particularly horrified by, for example, the Surgeon General in Florida, Joseph Latipo, who is anti-vax, anti-treatment, anti-science, and is giving not just wrong information, but like actively trying to prevent people from getting right information. So it's pretty scary. The part that makes me the most distressed is the withdrawal of masking in healthcare settings. Because for those of us in the disability community, me personally, I did not leave my home for the first 17 months of the pandemic. And I mean, literally did not leave. Not one time, not to take a walk, not to get the mail, did not leave my building one time in 17 months except to go get my vaccines. Didn't leave the house. My husband did grocery pickup and that was it. We were locked in for 17 months. It's a good thing I like Molux a lot because it, it, it's very trying, but you know, it's a very dangerous pathogen. It took my grandmothers and I am particularly bitter about that because my father was chair of the SARS report for the CDC. And he wrote the pandemic guidelines that would have kept us away from this. And Trump just tossed them out because we didn't want to do those things. It was too restrictive. And 200,000 more Americans than was necessary died. 
I'm floored that this is a medical issue that's become political. Like, yes, I am as far left as you could probably go with things. But honestly, this, it boggles my mind, even as someone who is very, very liberal, how this is even a discussion of liberal versus conservative. This is science. This should be nonpartisan, like environmentalism should be nonpartisan. These are nonpartisan issues that affected everyone. Like this is, this can kill anyone. The disease does not ask you who you voted for. It does not. And I think people misunderstand because of the coughing and so on, that it's a respiratory infection, but it's not, it's a pulmonary illness and it affects your heart and your circulatory system, causing all kinds of long-term problems. What I am least surprised about is seeing people in the universe and they're saying, oh, I was just recently diagnosed with fill in the blank with some rheumatological condition. It's like, what are the odds? I'm like, how many times did you get COVID? It's like three. It's like, well, that's where you got that. That's long COVID. It flips on all your shitty genes like a switch. And I'm one of the few unicorns. My husband and I have not had COVID. Neither of our parents have my parents or his parents. And so we're just like back to back, you know, trying to keep people away. It's very scary. And when you know that you are inordinately high risk, I mean, my husband's not eyeing. And the problem is he can't get his second booster because he's not immunocompromised. But I am, and he's my caregiver. Yeah. I don't really leave the house. I come to the office and I go back home. That was it. That's all I do. I come to the office. I work alone. My staff comes in a couple of days a week, but they have their own offices in here. And so we're separated. And they mask. They are, they mask the test. I see them two days a week. When they come to get their paychecks, you know, they like when I pay them. And I don't see people. I haven't gotten on a plane since 2019. I've driven down. My parents moved to San Diego over this last summer because they knew they'd never see me again. That was really the reason they moved to San Diego, because I was never going to get on a plane again. My risk is too high. My risk tolerance is too low. And so they had to move across the country from Louisville to San Diego last summer And my sister and her husband and their kids immediately followed because, you know, if not, we would all be separated because I I just will not travel again. And my father's, you know, he used to go to the CDC in Atlanta a couple times a month, go to D.C. for HHS meetings, NIH meetings, go to the Hill to advocate for things. He has no travel through the rest of the year. It's just not safe. People are not taking this as seriously as they need to. And it's terrifying. I am, you know, the whole don't live in fear Live in a in healthy respect. Oh, I like when healthers because right now we like have a place to go to get really good information. There used to be a standard it's like the CDC. You go CDC. I will do what you say. And then they've proven over and over again now that they are not partisan anymore, and that science is not their reasoning. And it's scary. So like they're working right now. Well, the good news is you can go to my dad just did a video last week with updated information on a COVID, all of the latest science and information. He teaches at the med school, the school of public health, the, the school of law and the school of nursing. He teaches public health, genetics, ethics, and he's been worked for the CDC for the last 25 years for, you know, various things. So it, he is not a partisan actor. And also he has no financial interest in this. So he's, he makes these videos about COVID for my clients and for my benefit, because it, it's very important that people have accurate information. So he's not trying to sell you any supplements. He's just giving you the latest data about who should get vaccinated and boosted and all that good stuff. But yes, no, he's not. He's a supplement salesman. He is 
however, going to try to encourage you to get bivalent boosted. For the long side of things, we're dealing with a lot of people who are immune compromised and have caregivers. And then we have a lot of people who here in California, which really shocked me, they're like, oh, well, that have to work in grocery stores and people have jobs. They work in cafes, they work in stores, they work in offices. And now if I'm understanding this correctly, they get COVID while they're in the office, while they're forced to be in a place that is non-masked and they get COVID, there's no longer any help for them. They now just go to work or don't eat. Yes, that is true because the federal government has ended the COVID emergency. Millions of people have lost their access to health insurance, essentially, because all of the the federal government and has said that they will provide Paxlovid until their stock runs out for free. Well, that's a few more months. So then what? And Paxlovid has become less effective. Fortunately, it still works, but, you know, it, it is less effective. What happens after that? The answer is you're on your own. And that is frightening. It is really violative of science. What really upsets me the most is how first we expected healthcare workers to bear the brunt of this whole pandemic. And then they burned out, and I totally understand that, but they've stopped respecting their patients. And what I mean by that is if you aren't wearing a mask and you are in a rheumatologist's office, you know you have immunocompromised patients. They're all immunocompromised because rheumatology drugs, by their nature, are biologics. Humira, all of those similar drugs, methotrexate, they all lower your body's ability to fight infection. So they know that they are dealing with people by their nature who are high risk and they aren't masking. Now, fortunately, my rheumatologist's office is totally masked. It is entirely, I am very happy that my doctor, you know, she's been stalking me step by step asking for COVID updates, but that's a bad sign. It's a bad sign when my doctors are coming to me for the latest science and updates and, and law. They all are, all of them. And it's, a, it's not a great situation. I mean, it is because then I can say, hey, here's what I'd like you to do. But it's very frightening to me that they have to turn to a patient because the federal government is doing such a crap job. We really needed an out front messenger on COVID and we've got no one. And real quick, though, with places like that where you are dealing with immune compromised patients, like if you work in a cancer ward, if you work the cardiac, wherever you're working where you have definite immune compromised people, why did it take COVID for them to start masking? Are you doing one to get people like that or bloom or? It, it really isn't an issue before because there wasn't a level three pathogen. So they're, they're, they weren't risking their patients' lives. I wouldn't have worried about my rheumatologist not masking pre-COVID because there's nothing fatal going around. But now there is. For example, I, I've been going through a series of medical treatments at my urologist's office and pre-12th, they COVID tested me when I arrived. Everyone in the waiting room was masked. The entire staff was masked. You had to be masked at all times. Mask, mask, mask. I come back the next week. No masks. What changed? Nothing. Nothing changed except the federal emergency declaration. I personally believe that it violates the AMA, uh, violates the doctor's code of ethics not to mask if you are seeing high-risk patients. The very first line in the code is that you are agreeing to treat each patient with dignity and respect. When you are putting your patients at risk of death, there's no dignity and respect, especially if I ask a doctor to mask for me and they say no. 
We were dealing with an incredible power imbalance. Let's just say someone went in. This absolutely didn't happen to me. Monofla. Yeah, Monofla went in with chronic pain to the new person who was just assigned to them because you can't choose your pain clinic doctor in a grouping. And this person had said already they were going to put opioids down by 50%. So Monofla was already fairly terrified going into this meeting in beginning of COVID in a small room where this doctor holds their very life in their hands. And their your likability is pretty important in that moment. And the doctor puts the mask under his chin like it's a bra. Yep. So then you have to pick your battles. Yeah. And then also with the pain, if you're on opioids, you have to pick up in person. It was very scary in the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, even if masking is required, let's just laugh about how well that went, even in pharmacies. The good news about our pharmacy is it's walk-up window outside. Oh, that's so, great. I had Costco, so... Oh, yeah. We the, we have the Ralphs at the end of our block, which is so handy because my husband could just walk there, walk up to the window, pick up. They know us because I have 27 prescriptions I take every <laughs> month. And so, you know, we live a block away. They know him. They know me. They're always like, how's your wife? Which is wonderful. But I wouldn't want to go inside. I, I still don't go inside. I, I do not go inside. I have not. I, I went inside to get my second booster. I will say to his credit, the guy was, he was unmasked. But when he came over to give me the booster, because he was like, you don't, you've already had a booster. And I was wearing my Lupus Warrior shirt because it was lup- World Lupus Day. And I was like, I'm immunocompromised. And he's like, are you? And I was like, I'm, I'm wearing the shirt. And I was like, let me just give you my date of birth. You're used to seeing my husband. It's me. I come pick up my drugs. And he was like, oh, okay. But he did mask when he came to give me my booster, which I really appreciated. But I'm, I am i don't know that this should have to be a fight. The problem is, and here I will give you another hypothetical. It's not about me, but it's a, it, it was not me. It was about someone else, but we'll, we'll just call her Monitra. Monitra went to see a new doctor. No one in the office was masked. Monitra checks in and says, I am very immunocompromised. Could you please mask while I'm, you know, getting my vitals and so on? They said no, refused to see her, refused to give her her paperwork back, and wouldn't promise not to charge her for the visit. What are we doing? And the problem is she can file a complaint with the California Medical Board, and I encouraged her to do so, but they're not going to do anything. No one's going to do anything about doctors who are burnt out and not masking. Are we going to let surgeons decide they don't need to wear masks anymore in the OR? Like, it defies actual science to have this situation. Like, it feels like Twitter's become part of our policy now, where non-medical professionals are creating policy. They're deciding our abortion rights. They're deciding our ability to get pain medication. They're deciding whether our, you know, our water can be safe. They're deciding like they, they're not scientists and they're making policy choices. Yes. The, the Texas judge who decided that mifepristone should be withdrawn from shelves is. Which, by the way, is a very important drug for people with rheumatoid arthritis. Like so that's, I, I've been taking a sister drug, misopristol, for decades. It, it's an anti-ulcer medication. And I mean, obviously my doctor's like, you can't get pregnant if you, you know, I mean, if you want to have kids, you, and it's like, don't worry, I'm good. No, thank you. Should um, close. Yeah, this is, this is not genes I feel like should be passed along to any other person. And also, I don't care for children. I, I like them in small doses of other people's, but responsibility for them is shivery. They're expensive. 
and you have to feed those things. I have two, and I can absolutely claim that they are the most lovely, wonderful, highly expensive creatures. Exactly. And, and, I, and you're not supposed to shake them. There's a lot of rules, and I, I just can't be bothered. There are, they, they do survive a lot. Like, they, they survive me as a mother, and somehow they're both hilarious. So I have managed to kill every plant I've owned, so I just can't. I, I feel like this would be bad. I enjoy watching my nieces like taking them to mini golf they're six and nine they're fun ages but i have to have my husband with me because i really can't be responsible if they run off i can't run after that i cannot tell you how much of a problem that was when i was a younger mother with small children who would run and i would like to just real quick psa if you have small children and you have mobility issues a wheelchair is your best thing you can chase after them easy they don't want to go anywhere they want to sit in your lap and have a free ride it was the only way oh. I parented a toddler boy who would run at anything was having a wheelchair. Yeah. Clever. Yeah, see, I accidentally flipped over my mobile wheelchair with one of them on my lap and hurt her. So that's, it scarred me for life. And now yeah. I'm... That's really fair. Yeah, be yep. careful out there, everyone, because what they say is ADA is actually the one tested with the wheelchair. I mean, I've gone to so many, like, kids' places. They're like, no, grab your wheelchair, be fine. I end up in rose bushes, like... Oh, I, I, this was a San Diego Zoo that this, the, um, oh my God, yes. too steep and I, my motorized wheelchair flipped over. Oakland was worse. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's very, very hilly. If there's not stairs at work, like, no, no, you all try this first. Like you guys, as healthy people, get in a wheelchair, give it a shot. If you survive as a healthy person, maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. We need to talk about some, uh, ADA stuff. Yeah. We should have another episode where we talk about the law of ADA because, well, I mean, what people think it means. It's very Princess Bride in that way. It is. the Oh, well, HIPAA. HIPAA is actually the king of this does not mean what I think it, you think it means. That's another thing. My father was one of the authors of HIPAA. We need to do a whole episode around that one. But I, maybe you just maybe you just have him on. He's a better guest. I mean, but I love your snark. So, yeah, well, it's where I got it from. He has my dry sense of humor. So it's very odd. My mom, my sisters and I, we all sound alike. But my father has like a he's where I got my impression of Mickey Mouse from. I was he has a very soft. OK, so we're going to talk about HIPAA. Oh, oh. I don't think that is the bit. That would be great. But I don't yeah, want to be talking to you about your book. Yes, the book just released and I'm already working on the new edition. Whoa, things change fast. I update it every six months, usually over 4th of July and Thanksgiving, but this year is due to the publisher June 22nd. The new edition came out a couple weeks ago and it's Disabilities in the Law, 4th edition, spring 2023. I write chapters two and four, which two is special education and four is employment. So those are the two largest chapters. And my co-author is my mother because this is all a family business. You know, we're all lawyers because, you know, Jews. And so, I am too, but I managed to avoid the lawyer thing. But you, if you get educated, you, you fulfill the stereotype. There is the push. My grandmother pushed hard for law or medicine, and I did the stupid thing and got English lit. I, I was an English lit major in college, but then I went on to law school. My sister's in her final year of rabbinical school. She also has several masters because Jews. And the, my other sister has an MBA because Jews. It's what we do. Education. Very important. Yeah, because you can never take that away from someone once you have your 
degree, you have it. Money comes and goes, but I will never have to wait tables. Of course, I will never be able to wait tables, but it, it was one of those things where, you know, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian and my parents said, well, you need a fallback plan and we'll pay for law school if you go. So I did. And now I own a talent agency at a very, very difficult time to own a talent agency. I mean, there's a lot of strikes going on. Yeah. COVID has hurt us terribly, followed by the WGA strike, which will now be followed by the SAG strike. And it's only through my willingness not to take a salary at the agency that we are staying afloat. Every cent I make goes back into the agency. And I'm only able to do that because of the royalties I make on the law book. Anyway, so I'm, I'm working on the new edition of the law book. And I have read nearly every single COVID-related case on employment or special ed and summarize them into one sentence and put them in the footnotes of the book. So if you are trying to sue somebody, this is the this is the true value of the book. And you are trying to figure out, okay, my employer refused to let me wear a mask. In all instances, that employer's going to be in big trouble because that's a very easy, reasonable accommodation. Not necessarily everybody else masking, but you masking, obviously. So my employer won't let me wear a mask. What can I do? Read the book, chapter four, section 20, reasonable accommodation. And then you find, okay, here's the sentence about a reasonable accommodation may be X, Y, or Z. Then there's a footnote and it will show every case by circuit. So in, in order, first, second, third, fourth circuits, and then all of the district cases, federal cases. So you can find something in your zone that's on point and use that as a great starting point for help. So this is that's the true value of the book is the footnotes for building your case, for finding further information. But it's a very good, solid overview of the ADA, and it's updated twice a year. So it is very, very current. So this is not by a state. This is federal. Yes. If you're in the United States, this is the book. It is very, very thorough. I uh, read 20 cases yesterday, so I'm very uh, on top of it. I'm halfway done with chapter four. Is there any cases that really like stand out to you that you're just like, that? oh my God. <laughs> I believe it's, it's going to be a, not a federal case, but it just, they just filed a case where this guy was a driver on a film and they were doing a bubble Piaspera shield, a plastic shield in the van he was driving. He was denied. He asked for everyone else to mask when they were in the van. He was denied. He ended up getting COVID and died. So that case, it's like you had guidelines in place and refused to enforce them. In that case, the brief for that case cited my father's brief, his uh, law review article on employer liability for take-home COVID-19, which is an issue which he and I worked on together. And we'll see how that goes. I believe that in that case, the employer should be liable because they had policies in place, but they refused to enforce them. And, and he died. He, he was part of the bubble. He was obeying the bubble rules. They refused to enforce the bubble rules and he died. And it just makes me very, very sad because our industry, the entertainment industry, has as a, on the whole gotten it correct. I'm an obsessive about the entertainment industry from the backside of things. I always like to know, like, how did this get made? How the special effects happen? I want to hear like what the decisions were and why. And so when Wednesday came out, there were things I loved in Haven, but I did love the dance. I thought that was really cool. But then I heard Jenna Ortega say that she had COVID during that dance. I had not heard that. I was like horrified. I'm like, wait a minute. This is like, 
no one was masked there. I don't think COVID cared that there was no camera. Like the camera was running. Like I, it, it, there just seemed to be like little things. That's that what I'm very on. concerned with. SAG has removed its policy, but in its place, they have a reasonable accommodation policy, which I think does actually meet the ADA as long as they actually use it. What my concern is, is if a client of mine were to book a SAG job and they are immunocompromised and we've booked and closed the job and I go to, to the production and say, okay, my client is immunocompromised and needs the testing accommodation, which is that anyone that they are in a scene with unmasked needs to be tested, crew needs to wear masks on set, and obviously, and the um, makeup and hair person needs to be masked and tested. They, they can't refuse the testing accommodation because that's what SAG has laid out. So if they refuse and fire my client, now I have to go through the EEOC and I have to file a lawsuit and I have to wait two years. And it's all that to get $1,000 for their one day rate. But in the meantime, my client basically can't work. And my question is, is SAG actually going to enforce this policy? And I don't know yet, but... I'll find out. But I'm also concerned about actors being afraid to ask for it. And I think that's a real concern. But I, I think that you let your agent do that. And if you are immunocompromised, you are entitled to these accommodations and you should not be afraid to ask for what you are entitled to. And this goes right back to what we're talking about, the opioid issue, where there's, you know, with actors, with anyone who wants to do their job, I feel like that's a job that people really want to get into. There's already a power dynamic because yep. it's hard to ask for what you need when what you want is so important. Yes. I think that part of the problem with the opioid epidemic is that there is a misunderstanding of the problem. It's fentanyl. The problem is fentanyl. It's not people who are prescribed 30 milligrams of Norco a day becoming, you know, big drug dealers. It's fentanyl coming in through our borders. I mean, the last round of fentanyl that they discover is not through our borders. It was a white woman who was... Well, I mean, like, it's not coming in through the southern border. It's coming in through shipping containers. It's being okay. shipped through our ports. The, the majority of fentanyl is coming from China, and it is coming through our ports. It is not coming from Mexico. Right. I just... Yes, let me be clear. It is coming in through our ports. It is not mules bringing in fentanyl. It is people mailing... This shipping containers hiding fentanyl in them. Illegal fentanyl is causing these overdoses because people don't know what's in things. They're using it to cut other drugs. And that's what I was going to say is like it's not being made in a medical lab setting. Where exactly. You exactly what you're getting. And the last time we were supposed to talk, we couldn't because I was doing hospice for my father. And that's where I came right up against this issue where my father was dying of pancreatic cancer and was being given lower opioid than I was taking for my dislocation. That's not acceptable. It's a week left to live, maybe. He may be 72 hours. He cannot get an addiction in 72 hours. Medicate the man. That was the concern when my grandmother was in hospice for COVID. I, she was scared, and I just wanted them to give her Haldol and yes. uh, lorazepam. Um, and they said, well, we can't because she's taking painkillers. It, it, you know, it's like, I mean, like, that was the worst case scenario. Like, they kept saying, oh, no, no. Like, you know, it'll be fine. She's struggling. It's two days. Yeah. It's, it's, it is the most insane situation I've ever watched, watching veterans be denied opioid. Like, I wanted to start, like, a, yep. a series of showing people, this is an opioid user right here. I... Get up in the morning, I take care of my kids. I take care of my family because I took yep. opioids. 
Exactly. I've taken my opioids today. Um, Hugh and I are here having a conversation. And that's thanks to oxycodone sponsored. I, I have a, a great necklace that says, uh, today's good mood thoughtfully brought to you by Pfizer. I can hate Pfizer. I can think of it immoral and horrible things, but I can also thank them for keeping me alive. Exactly. These drug companies, I was just saying last night to my husband, it's amazing that something this tiny keeps my heart pumping. And it's just, it's wild to me that I have to fight constantly to have access. I, I take opioids every day, every single day. I take 15 milligrams of Norco first thing in the morning. English muffin and Norco is breakfast every day. Come to the office, work a full day, get all of my work done because I have that medication. Without it, I would be bedridden. It is just a fact. I, I've been on the same steady dose. I've been on the same dose for 15 years. And let's be clear, Tylenol does not do this for us. Marijuana does not do this for itself. Yoga, meditation, none of those things. None of this works by itself. Yeah, pot is great. Uh, I like CBD for sleep at night. I take CBD drops for sleep at night and they definitely help me. And I vape pot throughout the day for pain, but I can't function and work with pot. A lot of pot, but I can function and work on Norco. I feel safe to drive because I know how it affects me. I've been taking it for so many years, and I also only work four blocks from my house. I just want to get the stigma of opioid users to go away. I am a functional adult. I don't get any money from the government. I make my own living. I'm a productive person. I pay my taxes. I have four full time employees. And this is what a, a, an opioid user looks like. I, I, I just want to disabuse people of the notion that all opioid users are on welfare. I have never, if I were, it would be fine. But my point is there are plenty of us who use narcotics regularly without becoming addicts, without increasing our doses. And the only time I ever increase my dose is when I have surgery. And then it's for like the two weeks surrounding the surgery. And then I go back. I mean... I am not going to like discuss how people do this, but if you want to see what you want to see, if you want to see someone destroyed by opioids, look at me without taking because that's what I yeah. look like if I don't take it. I am not parenting. I am not taking care of things. I'm not writing this podcast. I am not doing all of the things that need to get done in a life. The opioids make you functional because they eliminate something that is keeping your brain from focusing on anything else but pain. And, and I have a cushion built into my medication so that if I have a level 10 pain day, I can take more on that day. It's like I have a two or three a cushion of per month. I also want to just quickly touch on under-medicated because a lot of us are yeah. done. That's right now. My previous doctor at Cedars tried to remove me entirely from my opioids. And she's a pain management doctor who does not prescribe opioids. That's not a pain management doctor. That's a liar. It also goes back to the do no harm and treat your patient yep. with respect and care. And this is not respect or care. If you're walking in without even reading a file saying, I want to reduce opioids by 50%, that is not taking care. It's not patient-centered care. That's a blanket policy, and that's not helpful. When she had that conversation with me, I was like, no, we're going to have to move on because I have to have surgery soon. And she was like, oh, I couldn't even write your prescription for your surgery. And it's like, then what's the point? You're not a pain management doctor. And by the way, for everyone listening, we are two pale women. We are privileged. I am I am the whitest of the white women. Like this is this is the problem the privileged people are having. So please take a second yes. and a quiet prayer up to the universe to make this better for everyone else who's dealing with this because it's way harder for other people too. And 
the, the suffering is insane. Just as a woman to be believed at a doctor's office oh my is God. difficult in and of itself. I always bring my husband to first meetings oh. with doctors. I went to see a new foot surgeon at Cedars, and I won't name him, but he was so insulting to me. Essentially called me poor, and like he said, why are you using a cane? you're treating my, he's like, your feet are fine. I was like, ah, but my back is not, bro. If you took a look at my thing, you'd say I have four fused discs in my low back, lumbar spondylosis, man. But no, did not take a look at my file, called me poor repeatedly. Just kept saying, well, you can't afford these $400 orthotics. So I'll find a way. And just kept saying that. And I had my husband in tears because he basically said that I'd screwed up my own feet. I mean, I filed a complaint with Sears. I filed a complaint with the medical board. I should not have to hand you my... I am on the board of a Cedars pain management study. The fact that I have to show up in a suit to be treated like an adult, people who cannot see me, I am a white woman. I look sort of like a lesbian art teacher is sort of how I describe my vibe. Not leave the tackle, but that's fantastic. I mean, I would say that that's strongly the vibe I'm going with, lesbian art teacher. I'm 45, but I look 35. I don't dress, I wear dress sweatpants is what I call them, business sweatpants. I dress casually all the time because I'm very uncomfortable. I did not realize I needed to dress up to go to the doctor's office. It is very frustrating. My dad, to his credit, he said, yeah, he always wears a suit like a sport coat when he goes to the doctor because he wants to be treated with respect. As a woman who looks young, it is absurd that I would be treated that way. But that is the way I am treated. That is why I am very careful with my doctors. I, I do have an excellent rheumatologist, excellent pain management doctor, and I, I'm very pleased with both of them. You know, I have various other everybody else's, but those are the two that I especially am fond of my rheumatologist, my pain management doctor. Deeply jealous. I have a really kind pain doctor. I, the one I have now is kind and he is loving and he is very gentle. We'll talk about that soon, but I we've gotten to an hour, and I think we could probably talk for like five hours about all of this. Yes, probably. We'll see if you come back on again and tell, talk a little bit more about the law. We'd love to. Everyone. We can talk about anything you like. Disability activism is my passion. The irony is that my mother started working on these issues in 1979. She is not disabled. My father's not disabled. I am. But I wasn't in, in, in two years old. So the fact that she was making my life better before knowing that I would grow up to be disabled is just so beautiful. She was working on this stuff all my whole life. And even though I started having lupus symptoms at 12, I wasn't diagnosed until 24. Right. Yeah, we could do that whole talk too about how long it takes to diagnose us. No shit. Um, yeah. You want to talk about being believed? That's the worst. Well, you know, we like write a list of all the topics we can cover together. Excellent. I, I would love that because um, I do like to hear myself talk. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Be kind, be gentle, be a badass. Our new segment coming up is going to be technology and disabilities. So let me know about what gadgets you want me to test. And if anyone would like to see any of those videos of my dad's, the, the libraryagency.com slash COVID advocacy has a link to all of his videos and all of the papers that we wrote on COVID. So that way, if you are looking for resources. There are links there, like cases and laws, so that that way you have access to all that helpful stuff. We also just head over to our show notes. Hopefully we'll have it all linked up for you guys over there. Stay safe. Cat one. Thanks for joining us today. To find out more about today's episode, including show notes, transcripts, and more, please visit invisiblenotbroken.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can also support this show by heading over to our Patreon or by sharing these episodes. We are non-advertising, and our growth is thanks to you listeners. Thank you to Julia and our host, Monica, for a great conversation. This episode was edited by me, Luke Spine. Last but not least, be kind, be gentle, and be badass.